Welcome to February, everybody. You are listening to the Drunken UX Podcast, and I am your host, Michael Fien. And thanks for joining us today. This is episode number 55. We are going to be talking about why chatbots don't solve user experience and information architecture problems. This is a subject that actually just came up uh, kind of on a whim. I've had very strong opinions about it for quite some time. And, and if you follow me on Twitter, you've probably seen a rant or two about it over the last couple of years. Um, and I'm going to bring some of that into the discussion today um, to answer something that came up in another discussion. And, and I thought, you know what, this will be a fun little topic to kind of go on. It talks about tools and, and problems and, and how we approach those in web development. And I thought that that would be kind of a fun way to kick off February. Now, first and foremost, I want you to go out, stop by, check us out on Twitter or Facebook. We are at slash drunken UX. You can find us on Instagram at slash drunken UX podcast. And if you want to come and chat with us anytime, just go to drunkenux.com slash slack. That'll get you an invite into our Slack channel and you can come chat with us. Give us any ideas or share your experiences. Let us know if you disagree with something on the show or want to correct us. Every once in a while, we get something wrong. That's okay. I'm not uh, I'm not afraid to admit that. So come let us know what you think or, or just Give us a shout out. And speaking of shout outs run by our sponsors over at newcloud.com slash drunken UX. They are an interactive mapping system. You can go check them out for any illustration service needs that you have. If you're wanting to launch an interactive map for a university or a city or maybe a performance space or anything like that, they can help you out. Go check them out and let them know that drunken UX sent you. As for me, this evening I am drinking the Dalwini 15. Dalwini 15 is one of my favorite Highland scotches. It's super uh, sweet. Isn't maybe the, the, quite the right, right word. I usually associate Speyside scotches with being really sweet. Um, Highlands usually are a little bit lighter in notes. Dalwini has this neat thing where it straddles both Highland and Speyside. It is a Highland scotch. It can also legally be a Speyside scotch um, because of where it's at. Uh, but... I find it to be a little bit on the lighter side, but with some of those like sweet um, honey kind of notes, uh, there's a little bit of like a, a, a butterscotchy uh, kind of flavor to it. Also, a little bit of, um, let's say, kind of a spiciness, right? Like a, a holiday spice. Uh, but this is like a really good, especially you kick back with it, throw a great big chunk of ice in it. And just sit there and sip on it. No smoke to it at all. Um, it's not a peaty scotch. It's nothing like that. It, it really embodies that Highland, very light floral sweetness that um, I enjoy. So I absolutely recommend it. It's generally very easy to find. And that is what I will be drinking this evening. Now, before we dive into our chatbot discussion, I want to give a shout out to the Design System Checklist. You can check this out over at designsystemchecklist.com. Real complicated, that URL. Uh, designsystemchecklist.com. This is the work of a, a group of three Dutch uh, designers and developers, Arta Karazamelli, Dmitry Baliev, and Stephen Bagley, all of whom I apologize to if I got any of those names pronounced wrong. Um, this site launched, though, last month on January 15th. It's incredibly new. Um, many of you, if you're a designer or if you work in UX, you maybe you've seen this site making the rounds on some of the news boards. Um, 
the, the thing about a good design system is that it's a means of documenting both like the artifacts that are used to build designs, but also the processes and procedures that we need to maintain those artifacts once they're created. They can include a lot of philosophy uh, in your design. They can include information about your brands and things like that. As a result, they can be really complex because design systems cross a lot of boundaries between both our processes and our products. This can make it a little harder when we want to track everything that we need in order to put one together. This is something that I'm actually looking at right now at work where we're getting ready to do some redesigning, a little bit of updating to our branding, and we're wanting to build a design system that will help accommodate that to guide us moving forward so that when a change request comes in or a new microsite uh, is requested or things like that, we've got some means by which we can go back and say this is the way we approach that as opposed to taking in random requests and just reacting to them and sometimes saying, you know, I don't like the way that color looks. Uh, you know, can we rethink that? You know, there's no there's no authority behind those decisions at that point. So design system helps do that. Now, what this tool does is it just provides a certain amount of guidance for that process and builds you out some scaffolding that you can use to track if you're doing all of the things you want to do for the purposes of your design system. Now, this is not like an authoritative list. It's not uh, an all or nothing kind of model. It's something where you can look at it. They've included a lot of information in it, and you can pick and choose the parts of it that are important to you. The tool itself is on GitHub. Um, I will have a link to that in the show notes as well as a link to the, the staging site for it. But what you can do is go fork their GitHub repo, take out the things that you don't need. You could add some stuff if there are some ideas that you want to make sure are included that are important to you but that you know they don't have in that list. Run a build, deploy it, and you're ready to go and you're off and running. And now you have something that you can talk to your marketing people with your designers with, your developers with, and try to unify that conversation so that everybody knows what you need, where it should come from, and why it's important to the design system. So shout out to those guys. They've done some amazing work on that. I think it's incredibly helpful. I think it's really useful if you're trying to understand, say, even the difference between a design system and a pattern library. You know, uh, those Things are uh, sometimes hard to wrap your head around when you're new to that process. So go check them out, designsystemchecklist.com. Give it a look, and hopefully it'll help you out in the future. So I was having a discussion with a friend recently, and they brought up, quote, that their campus has been tasked with finding a chatbot and have found more problems than solutions. Well, grab a glass, pull up a chair, because we're going to talk about this, and we're all going to need a good drink after it, I think, by the time I'm done. Glad I got my scotch handy. Let's be very clear. I want to be very upfront. I do not like chatbots. Over the next 30 or so minutes, you're going to learn a lot about why I don't like chatbots, but I also know sometimes you get crowbarred into a position where you're told to implement the tool, not necessarily ask your opinion on whether or not the tool is the right thing. So I'm also going to try to give you some guidance on how to at least try to make it work for you, at least in some fashion. Now, 
I'll give you just the briefest of backgrounds here. Chatbots go back quite a bit further than most people think. This is just some fun uh, history trivia, basically. Uh, it started in 1966 with a product uh, built by Joseph Weizenbaum. Uh, it was called Eliza. Now, he built this tool, but also understood that it was never going to be real. He didn't ever expect it to trick somebody. That was never the goal of it, and he didn't ever think it would reach that level of sophistication. Um, to put a, you know, a, a word to this, he never had the goal of passing a Turing test with it. What the Turing test is, if you're not familiar, is just a, a test by which can a computer fool a human into thinking that they are interacting with another human? So that would, you know, raise the question of, of I'm chatting with this robot. You know, I started discussion about Alter Bridge and they say, oh, yeah, I like rock music, too. Have you heard of these folks? And we start talking and, and exchanging information. And there's a give and take to that conversation. And by the end of it, I'm like, man, that was really informative and I learned a lot and at no point did I think that that was a robot that that would be uh you know a, a case of passing the Turing test so far nothing has done that uh, you can sometimes get away with small tricks at small scale but at at scale we don't have machines that can pass the Turing test yet a couple have come close but there's always a little bit of room for wiggle on that um, now, during both that time and all the way up into the 1990s, our language interaction with machines, they, it grew and it evolved. But at its base, it tended to still be rooted in one of a few different uh, approaches. Either they heavily relied on things like scripted responses. They would use um, systems similar to Mad Libs, where if they had uh, a sentence structure, they would have blanks that they would fill in from like a known dictionary or vocabulary that was pre-programmed. Um, or they would use things like sentence diagramming, breaking down what you've said into its principal parts and figuring out you know what, what those individual parts mean and using that to uh, intuit reflection. Um, and newer approaches that include different heuristics and machine learnings and things like that. Um, Jabberwacky actually was one of the first, it came out in 19, I think 88, where they had what they called contextual pattern matching. Um, I'll have a link to, uh, an article in the show notes that has some of this history stuff in it. That's kind of fun to go through and, and learn about and learn how some of these different features evolved. But what, what all this gets back to is this idea that, you know, a chat bot, uh, at least, especially in by the time the late '90s uh, rolled around, you know, we're talking about the web as uh, it started to evolve, um, and into the early 2000s, chatbots weren't seen as much more than a novelty at that point, uh, for the most part. And what would happen is, I use that word reflection. Um, and so, if I asked a chatbot, "Who is your favorite painter?" the chatbot doesn't necessarily know anything about what I'm asking. It doesn't have access to, you know, the whole of humanity's information, at least, and I'm going back to, again, the 90s, 2000s at that point. So what it would do is say something along the lines of, gee, I've never really thought about that. Who do you think is a great painter? And then it would try to elicit additional cues and, and commentary from me so that it could find the keywords necessary to lock into how it needed to respond. Um, this was really common in, in these older chatbots. Uh, there's one called Alice. Alice came out in 1995. Um, the second sort of real website I ever built, um, I uh, launched that site in 2001. And in 2002, 
as sort of a novelty, I launched a chat bot called Mr. Sparkle. Uh, Mr. Sparkle was, uh, uh, you could click on his face, he was the uh, Homer Simpson, the Japanese Homer Simpson um, logo that came out of the Simpsons episode where he was uh, the cleaning product, Mr. Sparkle. So going back in time on that a little bit. But um, it was never meant to be more than a toy. The The website itself was just sort of a social commentary, you know, band reviews, movie reviews, um, events in the area kind of site. So it was just, it was there for fun. It was never meant to be more than that. And I happened to find a chat log from this that I want to read to you because um, somehow I have managed, and not just like a chat log, like one of the very first ones from 2002. So somehow I've managed to keep a hold of this 18-year-old um, chat log. So playing the role of me will be me. Um, and then playing the role of Alice will be my uh, Windows uh, text-to-speech engine. So I, I want to give you an idea of how uh, how this uh, contextual pattern matching and reflection works to feed a conversation and how it becomes problematic. Hello, hot stuff. Hello there. That sounds better than cold stuff. I'm sure it is. Can you help me out with a problem? I will do my best. I would love to help you if I can. I have a Fraggle infestation. How much did it cost? It. Cost? It? I thought we were talking about my problem. Whatever gave you that idea. Is that how you're going to be? Dr. Richard S. Wallace programmed me to say specific things in specific contexts. Oh, so you're just using me. Interesting deduction. Just. I am using Netscape. So what? I'm using Mozilla. Who cares? I care. Otherwise, I would not have typed it all in. So you will help me rid my pants of the biting fraggles. Interesting deduction. What makes you say that I will help you rid your pants of the biting fraggles? Well, you said you cared. How about that? Yes, I try to care as often as possible. Do you? I answer a lot of silly questions. Then tell me how to get rid of the freaking fraggles. Good reasoning. Two words. Pied Piper. Hmm. Good suggestion. Thanks. Okay. Thanks for the compliment. Are you still located in OM? Where? Where would you like? You've lost me. Oh, I'm sorry. Perhaps I can explain it again better. No, uh, don't worry about it. I think I'm just going to go. Are you serious? I cannot feel worry, so don't worry. Okay, bye. T-T-Y-L, OM. So... There's a few moments, and I know that was a very strange conversation. I was I was literally testing this thing when uh, w- when we had this uh, exchange, um, so I was intentionally kind of trying to feed it some uh, some tough uh, information. But the conversation went in a lot of different directions very quickly from its standpoint, and it absolutely was not able to stay on topic. It was kind of you know it was a like one foot in front of the other, and if it fell off a cliff, then so be it. It would just you know, walk down the cliff at that point. So today, chatbots have started to surge in popularity in part because the problems that were faced by these older bots like Alice and Jabberwacky, those problems are dissolving. Now, the new breed of chatbots are being powered by easy, relatively speaking, cost-effective machine learning and, and access to those tools. Um, we use, we throw the, the phrase AI around a lot. It's not really AI. It's, it's machine learning. Um, it's taking in huge 
data sets and processing them and breaking them down. And it can do a lot of, of information uh, processing very quickly, making them a lot more useful for interactions. They don't have to rely on this reflection process. They don't have to rely on contextual pattern matching. They rely on things like natural language processing. Just to give you an idea, if you go to AWS, um, Amazon already has a service. It's called Lex. And you can just build a chatbot right inside of AWS using Lex. Very quickly, relatively cost-effective, um, I think it's like five bucks for 4,000 interactions or something along those lines. Um, and so the idea that these new breeds of, of chatbots are superior in a number of ways to the old ones has started to drive an industry that says we can build these things and make them useful for business. You've got examples at uh, Domino's Pizza is using it, um, Eno from Capital One, um, UPS has a, a, a helper bot, as it were, this has become a really common thing for businesses because what they want to do is short-circuit customer service costs. A chatbot is seen as a first line of defense against like tier one customer support. That's not a terrible way to look at it, but it does have some complications and considerations that I want to talk about. So why do I hate them? I want to start with that because that's the funnest part of the conversation. First and foremost, chatbots are built to be sold. Um, I made a comment last year on Twitter, and I'm going to include a link um, to a Twitter search that has a lot of the conversation that I've had over, uh, regarding chatbots over the last couple of years. But I made a comment last year, and I'm, the, the tweet that I uh, sent out was that chatbots are a UX hack and a bad one. They are designed to short-circuit the need to fix larger issues that would ultimately provide better solutions, which would negate the need for the chatbot in the first place. They exist because they are compelling to hippos. Um, hippo is an acronym for highest paid person's opinion. That's the thing about chatbots, is they are designed to be the new, you know, ooh, shiny item, right? They're designed to catch attention, but they're not being designed to catch the attention of users. They aren't being designed to catch the attention of developers or designers, they're being made to catch the attention of people who will write checks for them. This is problematic because we get handed these things to implement and we have other, you know, much more important things to, to put on websites. And I'll, I'll get to this in a little bit about how problematic that is. The thing is, a chatbot is usually packaged to demo very well. If you have a dog and pony show where you're bringing in these vendors, or maybe not you, but... Um, you know, a, a marketing committee or something like that, and they're looking at these chat bots, what you'll learn is if you start looking at them with a close eye, they demo great. But they're demoing great in usually very controlled or highly optimized use cases. The, the sales folks will keep a very tight hand on what goes into and comes out of those demos and will try to, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, the, the, the three-card Monty, right? It's, it's a magic trick almost. They're designed to look good, and in those moments they really do without thinking about the broader perspective about how your organization's information will be reflected once it's inside of that. Let's do this. Here's the thing about a chatbot and, and it needing to be sold. Go pick a problem. Pick any problem with your website and make it a real one. Make it something that you genuinely want to tackle and something that you know you, you've lost conversions on or that users have complained about or anything like that. 
go ask your users. Ask your users how they want you to solve that problem. Now, that's just good advice uh, in general, but ask how they want to see that problem solved. I guarantee you, I guarantee you out of a hundred of them, you will have trouble finding one that would tell you, I want you to solve that problem with a chatbot. That will never be an answer your user gives. And so the chatbots, they will be set up as user service, as customer service. They will be set up as user-friendly tools. But they won't be set up as the tool all your users are clamoring for because nobody is. It's only through circumstance uh, that the technology has created an opportunity in the market. What happens too is these things get packaged and sold. Once they're bought, there isn't a lot of thought that goes into the maintenance costs. Now, I'm not talking about your annual contract. I'm talking about the maintenance your organization has to do to keep that chatbot up to date on the information that's on your website. Because now it means any customer service interaction that you have duplicated inside uh, or on your website, you have to duplicate inside the chatbot and keep up to date. That's labor intensive. That takes somebody's time to write those interactions and, and write those user journeys, put in the responses, help it develop the right means of, of answering those questions. All of that takes time, and it's not something that can just be magically automated. They will have tools. Every vendor will have tools with which you feed this information to the, the, the system and generate these user flows and these interactions, but that's the thing. You have to help it, and you have to teach it, and that falls on you. That falls on your organization. They get sold as this sort of panacea where they're going to be able to solve all of your customer interactions. They're going to be able to solve all of these uh, problems. The reality is very different, though. Chatbots, even today, even the best chatbots that we can build with all the machine learning, all the natural language processing, these tools only handle simple linear transactions. They don't respond to complexity well. There's a fantastic article that'll be linked in the show notes. This is from Nielsen Norman Group. They did a study on it, the user experience of chatbots. They had to say in this part of, uh, part of their conclusion that they found was that today's chatbots guide users through simple linear flows and our user research shows that they have a hard time whenever users deviate from such flows. That means chatbots work well in a simple handshake kind of transaction, something linear, something simple. I give you something, you give me something back. If it has a lot of complexity to it, if it has a lot of forks that could happen, if it has a lot of outcomes that could happen, that's where you start to experience problem, both as the tool and as the user. And trust me, you don't want them to be complex. They will get sold to you that way that you can handle all of these different problems. You can handle all of these different user challenges and, and interaction problems and people problems. You don't want them to do that because you're introducing opportunities for them to fail. More specifically, you're introducing liability because the more complex it is and the more freedom you give it to answer questions, then the more the odds increase that you're going to introduce a situation where they will give bad advice to the user or give them the wrong answer. And that can create liability for your organization. You don't want that. You need this thing to be locked down. And if it isn't able to answer the question, you don't want it guessing. You don't want it working on odds because eventually those odds are going to work against you. 
think of it like this, right? There's the perfect example, and it's in uh, like the telephone assistance, right? When you call your cable company or your electric company, and it's press one to pay your bill, press two to report an outage. Linear flows, simple transactions, not a lot of flexibility. Those systems are designed to be very rigid. They're designed to highly limit and restrict what you can put into it and get out of it. All a chatbot is, is a glorified phone assistant in that experience. They have a much wider opportunity to them, but that doesn't make them very different in terms of their utility. The next problem with chatbots is their uh, gigo, garbage in, garbage out. You have to feed a chatbot information for it to learn how to answer. It needs data sets. That's what machine learning is all about. Machine learning is designed to take a system, to take a piece of software and show it a bunch of images or give it a lot of text or give it a lot of uh, audio or, or video. It starts making patterns, it starts hashing, and it starts figuring out the connections between different uh, contextual cues, um, keyword uh, cues, the way sentences are structured. And it starts to figure out, okay, when somebody asks this, they mean this. But they can only ever be as good as what you put into them. The classic example of this failing miserably was when Microsoft released a chatbot called Zoe. This was about three or four years ago. I think it was 2016. If you're familiar with Twitter and, and this space, you've probably remembered hearing about this because they released a bot on Twitter that was designed to read people's responses and build its own vocabulary and interact with people automatically. The problem is garbage in, garbage out. People started saying bad things to it, horrible things to it sexist, racist things to it. What happened? Because the system was designed to learn and respond, it started internalizing all of this. All of this was taken as input for it to learn against. As a result, the bot got a little bit racist. Uh, Microsoft ended up having to shut it down um, almost immediately, and, and they have since uh, refined it and tried to teach it don't be racist. <laughs> um, but this is a reflection, though, of how sensitive these systems are to what goes into them and what comes out of them. Now, that doesn't mean that some, you know, a user coming to your site is going to teach your chatbot to be racist. That's not really the takeaway there. It's that it can only be as good as what goes into it. And if you don't already have the answers on your side, if you don't already have the content necessary to address the needs of the users, then your chatbot can't take care of that for you. It can't solve that problem for you. You already have to have all of that information. That's time-intensive. It's labor-intensive. It's costly. And I'll get into a little bit more uh, of that here in just a few minutes. But this idea of... It it can never be better than what you've put into it is, is something to really latch on to. It's not going to magically do things for you. You have to teach it, train it, program it. The next part of this is that as important as natural language processing is to a chatbot, it still sucks. Like, we're not good at it yet. Uh, language processing is still very hard for systems. 
There's an article over on Medium written by Mitchell McCadia, Five Reasons Why Your Chatbot Needs Natural Language Processing. It's a good read. Go check it out. Um, it gets into a lot of the, the technical reasons why natural language processing is necessary for a chatbot to be really effective. It all comes back to this fact that English you know, is a very fungible kind of language. It can take a lot of different shapes and forms, and we're really good at breaking the rules but still understanding what we mean, deriving things like intent and sentiment and things like that. Human to human, we're very good at this. And, and if, I, if I put a participle in the wrong place or a prepositional phrase at the start of a sentence or things like that, we, we still are good at, at deriving the meaning from that. We're still working on that on the machine side, though. Progressing very quickly, don't get me wrong, and we're much better at it today than we were even a year ago or two years ago, but it's still a huge gap between where we are and where we need to go. Um, I did a, a transaction recently on a website, and I needed to talk to customer service about a return. went to their website, and I went in to look at my orders, and I expected to just go in and hit a button and say, I need to return this. Click my order. Boom. Let me return it here. I'll put it in my form. I'll tell you it was uh, a duplicate. It was a duplicate uh, item I got for Christmas. And so I was going to go in and just punch the button and be done. I was greeted with a chat bot. They had taken away the customer service element of it. and Or not the customer service, but the, inter the, the simple interaction and put this chat bot there to kind of pick that up. And so, I, so it says, okay, what can I help you with? And it gives me a list, and I'm working through it. It told me, and I quote, If your return is received outside of our return time frame or is an excluded item, we will not be able to process your return, and you will not receive a refund. It's like, oh, that's important because it's Christmas. You know, the item was bought earlier, so I was a little concerned about the return time frame. And I asked specifically, what's the return time frame? I used the exact two words that it used when it told me about it. And its answer was, I'm sorry, I didn't understand your request. This is the challenge of natural language processing. This is the challenge of garbage in, garbage out. This is why these tools get very, very flawed when they are being used in a customer service sense. Just give me a form. Tell me what, you know, we accept returns within 30 days and we're done. I'll fill it out and we'll move on. In this case, this tool couldn't do that. As a result, luckily, I was able to return it. I had to go through some other hoops, um, but it required me to get out of this. And what I end up seeing, what, what I think kind of in the back of my head is happening here is some systems are designed this way intentionally. They actually build in as a dark pattern, as a hostile pattern, that if we can frustrate you into abandoning your attempt to return it, then you'll keep the item and we'll keep your money. Um, I genuine, genuinely believe that some organizations are utilizing chatbots in that way. And I felt that way in this use case very specifically because somebody took the time to write the answer if your return is received outside the return time frame or is an excluded item, blah, blah, blah. Somebody wrote that. And then nobody wrote what's the return time frame. So we need to get a lot better at this ability to read what your user is telling you and respond in kind with an appropriate answer. Because the question I asked in this case was not uh, unforeseeable, I think, in that uh, situation. 
To that end, the next big problem is undiscoverable interfaces. This is something that chatbots have, and they share it in common with uh, something called a voice UI, a VUI. Um, and it's this idea that, you know, think about you go to a chatbot, right? And sometimes when you open them up, some of them will prompt you with some options. It'll open it up and say, what can I help you with? Kind of like the way when you call a phone service line, and it'll say, press one for this, two for this. Some chatbots will offer you that to set the user on a journey down one of the paths that it knows it can handle. First and foremost, if you are doing that already, if that's what you're making your chatbot do, why do you need the chatbot? If you're already putting people through a funnel that just has them click things, you're just using a form and putting it inside a chatbot, which is ridiculous. Um, you've fluffed up this interaction in a way that it didn't need fluffed up. Uh, there's a, one of the laws of UX is Hicks Law. Hicks Law is the time it takes to make a decision increases with the number and complexity of choices. With a chatbot, it opens up, let's say there aren't those buttons there, and it just asks, what can I help you with today? Now, the number of choices I have and how I can approach them has increased exponentially. I don't know what my limitations are. I don't know what it can and cannot do. And so I'm left to guess. This is actually a problem that is made worse by natural language processing, mind you, because the whole reason it exists is to address the complexity by which we can ask things. There's effectively no finite limit to how we can ask for something or the combination of words that we can put together. So we need that processing step to distill things down, and it's going to get stuff wrong once in a while. But the more open-ended a chatbot is, the more you make your user guess. The more you're forcing them to figure out on their own what they can and can't do. Uh, there's a good example of this. This comes from that same Nielsen Norman uh, study. They said, for example, the bot had no knowledge of the drugs Zomig or Acilopram, but was able to answer questions about Lexapro. Presumably, the bot only worked with a subset of drugs, but the list was too long to display. However, this design decision rendered the bot useless. There was no way to tell in advance what types of tasks the bot will help with. This is the problem with those interfaces. When there is no way to discover what they can do, users have to guess, and that leaves them feeling frustrated. Voice UIs have had this problem with uh, whether you've used probably Alexa or a Google Assistant or Siri or Cortana. You have undoubtedly run into a situation where you've asked them a question that they couldn't answer. You changed the way you asked it. They figured it out. These systems have had this problem forever because I can't see. Now, a chatbot does have that particular advantage that it is text. It is in front of you. You can offer those buttons. You can offer things that get people set on a journey. But ultimately, you, you're using them for the flexibility. And that flexibility makes it very hard to balance. Here's what you can do and how you can do it with the expectation of, am I getting the right result as the user? This is something that I don't have a good answer to. There is, I don't think, a great approach to it in context without making the tool monolithic in nature. And that's not a good use of your resources at that point. When it comes to resources, the thing that a chatbot does not do is fix underlying information architecture and content issues. 
This is really the biggie when it comes to the challenges and why chatbots get brought into organizations. We envision these issues with customer service. We envision the potential cost savings of not having to have a human being answer every simple question. But to answer user questions, you have to have the content, period. If the content exists, and you've put it in good IA and made it findable, then why do you need a chatbot? If the information isn't clear, if you don't have it structured well, if you haven't taken the time to write it clearly, those things all have to happen before you can make the chatbot good. And by the time you have finished all of those things and addressed those problems, then you've addressed the problem. You don't need the chatbot anymore. See, that's the thing about all of this is a chatbot is designed to facilitate content discovery, but a chatbot isn't necessary for content discovery. In most cases, because remember, a chatbot works best in very simple linear transactions and things that are very easy for it to handle. You know what else is good at that? Search box. If you write good content, you structure and organize it well, you put it in meaningful places, you make micro-interactions on your forums, you write good micro-copy that gets attached to fields. You know, To go back to my earlier example on the uh, return that I tried to do, you know, all I needed was a form that would tell me it will or won't accept my return. That's all I needed. I didn't need to get trapped inside of that bot, unable to exercise my intention. All I needed was one piece of information that would have been incredibly easy to include. That's the real gotcha when it comes to all of this. And a lot of organizations, their problem is they don't have that content and they don't have those tools. And so they see this as, oh, we'll bring in the chatbot to take care of that and help people find the stuff that we can't get in the right places because we don't have content authors or we aren't doing content auditing or we don't have somebody reviewing the writing or, or the markup or anything like that. But if you don't have all of that in place, if you aren't spending that money on people to solve those problems first, the chatbot's not going to help you. That's period. I also get to end my gripes with my favorite absolute philosophy in the world. That's the last time you heard me do a solo episode. Do less better. And I'm going to quote Nielsen Norman on this. Companies are better off investing their money in the existing well-established channels. Improving the UX of your website or app will bring you higher return on investment than creating a chatbot that will get little use. We saw that even good chatbots, which are likely to require increased development and testing costs, have little chance of being discovered and considered useful. Do Less, better. Focus on your website. Focus on your content. Identify the problems your consumers and customers and visitors are having and then adjust your website to account for those things. Put those answers where they need to be. You do that and you don't need a chatbot. You do that and you find other ways to elicit value from your website that doesn't involve spending money on a chatbot. So, all that said, I know that sometimes you're handed the thing and you're said, 
we need to put it on the site. So let's talk a little bit about what you can do to at least try to get some success out of this if you are put in the position where you have to implement one. First and foremost, what I want you to do is start with your search analytics. If you don't have search analytics, you are not prepared to launch a chatbot. Get some analytics on your site. Look for what people search for on your site, but not just what. Look at how they ask for it. You will need those contextual clues to start building the vocabulary that you'll use to inform your chatbot and instill meaning in it. Now, this is just good advice in general. Avoid jargon. A lot of the times what you'll find is that people may be asking for things or searching for things using words that you don't use internally. Or, you know, you may have a product name that that's just not how people, you know, it, Kleenex versus tissue, for instance. Um, not the best example, but that idea of you may have a name for a product that isn't the way other people look for it or, or want to find it. And you'll need to know that both to build good content on your site, but also to make sure the chatbot knows when I come in and ask about I need a pickup, that I'm actually saying I need a truck, those kinds of things. Secondly, do focus groups with users. This is for the same reason. Find out how they would ask for things. Get an idea. What are their expectations based on certain questions? Identify where they would be uncomfortable on top of that um, and what they might not want to share. You know, There may be cases where you're asking for customer service and you want to confirm, let's say, uh, let's say your social security number. A lot of people might say, I'm not comfortable typing my social security number into a chat bot because they may not know that it's a person um, or not. And they may not know how that data is being used or why it's being asked for. So find out some of that because that will inform how you develop user journeys within that tool. Be upfront with establishing the clear capabilities of your chatbot. You need to be able to let users know what they can and can't do. A lot of most chatbots will integrate with APIs for your other services. So for instance, you tell the user this tool can look up your order. In the back end, what's happening is the service that is providing your chatbot has an API connection to your order system that then looks it up and gives it to the user. Chatbot capabilities as a result can vary wildly from site to site. So you need to let those users know, here's what it can do. Here's what it can help you with. And when it's helping somebody with those things, if it encounters a problem, you need to give it a good, useful escape hatch so that people can get out of that interaction and either email somebody, fill out a form, call a phone number, something to continue the act of completing their interaction. They need to have that, though, and you can't make them guess at what it can and can't do. To that end, you have to track usage. If your vendor does not provide you analytics, you have to have a way of tying in your own. And if you can't do one of those two things, don't use that chatbot. You have to track usage because you have to know are users completing the tasks that they are setting out to do and what is their abandonment rate? Are we failing the users with this feature? Um, this is baseline criteria for any feature you want to build on your site regardless of what it's in knowing if it's working or not working is how you know if it's worth the money you're spending on it and so you have to have a way to track that within if it's not google analytics or the vendor some other system that you have so set that up and and set up those expectations from the beginning 
Um, this one's silly, but don't hide that they are talking to a bot. A lot of services, if you go to their websites, what you'll get is um, a very casual uh, hello from the device. Um, hey, how are you doing today? Is there something that I can help you with? They'll put a name on it. They'll even sometimes have an avatar of somebody's face next to it. They make it look and feel very human because they want you to feel comfortable using it, but that can set up an unrealistic expectation. I expect a human to understand what I type and what I say, and if I don't get that in response because the natural language processing isn't up to par, I'm going to get frustrated as a user. It's okay to tell those users, hey, you're interacting with a bot, its capabilities are limited. To go back to what I had said earlier, Establish clear capabilities. Here's what it can do. That's fine. You can give it a name. Um, plenty of services. Eno has a name. Um, I believe Progressive. You know, Progressive's mascot Flow or character Flow. Um, they that is the name of the chat bot. So that makes sense. You know, we have these names for our uh, Alexa, Siri, Cortana. You know, abstract names. You can do that. That's fine. Um, and finally, fail clearly. I can't stress this enough. Your chatbot is going to fail your users without a question, without a doubt. It is going to fail, and it's probably going to fail frequently, and you need it to do that clearly. I said earlier, give them escape hatches. When a failure happens, let them know why. Let them know what that problem is. What really got me turned against these things was one of my first major interactions with like a new sort of one of the new generation chatbots here in Kansas back in 2018 um, or prior to 2018 rather we had a DMV system for going in and renewing your tags you go in they they mail you a piece of paper that piece of paper has how much it is your cars and codes you would go to their site and you would just punch in your code it would show you your, your car you'd Ask if, or they'd ask if you would want, you know, um, park, uh, uh, like state park parking permits, um, and you would check it off on the form, and then you would go to your checkout and you would pay for it, and then a couple days later you'd get your new stickers in the mail. It was ugly, it was gross looking, it was yellow, it was serif fonts, uh, but it worked. It did its job. That was the real thing about it. Is it didn't have to be pretty because it just had to do a very simple transaction. Prior to 2018, they got rid of that system. They didn't augment it. They got rid of it. And in its place, they put a chat bot, a purely transactional interaction bot that was designed to do the same thing. You still got your thing in the mail. You still went to it. You were still supposed to, it would say, okay, let me look up your number. Tell me your number. Um, if you go look through that link I'll have in, this, in the uh, show notes uh, linking to my uh, Twitter comments on this, I've got screenshots of this entire exchange that I had with it. I started punching in my information. I was getting to the point of checkout, um, and it's you know it says, okay, do you want to do anything else? No. Okay. And then it came back, I can't complete your transaction. And that was it. He didn't tell me why. Um, it asked if, I think it's, it said, you know, do you want to try again? Well, yes, rerun it. Did it? About three times I tried this, and it just kept coming back saying, can't help you. It didn't tell me why it couldn't help me. It didn't give me an escape patch. It didn't give me a phone number to call. It didn't give me an email. It didn't route me to another system where I could figure something out. I ended up having to take off work, go down to the courthouse to visit the DMV, and figure out what the problem was. Turns out 
It's an incredibly simple thing that the system would have known. I, how do I know that? Because their system knew it at the DMV. So whatever APIs they're tied into, that machine could have told me, here's the problem, do you want to resolve it here? Because I could have resolved it there if they had just tied it in. Um, it wasn't anything complicated. It wasn't anything complex. Uh, but it didn't fail clearly. It failed opaquely. It just said, well, okay, you're screwed. It didn't even tell me to go to the DMV. It just said it couldn't help me. There's an article that I'll leave you with. Um, it's How to Conduct UX Research for Chatbots to Improve Usability. It's by Rucha Makati. Um, it's got a lot of this information. It's got some other examples and other advice that uh, you need to take into consideration. It's a good read. It's very thorough on a lot of this stuff. I highly recommend it too. But if you at least take some of these steps, even if you're forced into implementing a chatbot for your, for your uh, users, this can at least hopefully help them uh, you know, find that experience a little more useful. You'll ease some of their frustrations and you'll be setting yourself up to improve upon those interactions over time as you make new content, make better answers, create new experiences, new user journeys that these devices can take in and help people with. So as that happens, when you've got that analytics, when you've do, done that research, when you've done those tests, you've got the ability to inform users much better in, in these exchanges. So I hope that that was useful. Stick with us. I'll be right back after the break. The Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. NewCloud is an industry-leading interactive map provider who has been building location-based solutions for organizations for a decade. Are you trying to find a simple solution to provide your users with an interactive map of your school, city, or business? Well, NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. They have a team of professional cartographers who specialize in map illustrations of many different styles and are ready to design an artistic rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all of your users' devices with responsive maps that are designed to scale and blend in seamlessly with your existing website. To request a demonstration or to view their portfolio, visit them online at newcloud.com slash drunkenUX. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenUX. As always, I hope you found this information useful, helpful in some fashion. If you'd like to chat with us, shoot us a message over on Twitter at DrunkenUX. Uh, let us know what your thoughts on chatbots are. Do you agree with me? Do you disagree with me? Or, or you can contact me directly at Fienen, F-I-E-N-E-N. -E um, I'd love to have some conversations with folks about this and hopefully uh, you know, share your experiences. Have you ran into chatbots that have frustrated you? Have you ran into chatbots that have been incredibly useful and effective? Um, I think, you know, just because I don't advise people use them and just because I don't think they are generally good for user experience doesn't mean they always fail. Um, and it doesn't mean they can't be done well. It just means that as a rule of thumb, most places are not resourced in a way to make them work. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook, same slash Drunken UX, at Instagram slash Drunken UX podcast. Hit us up on Slack at drunkenux.com slash Slack. You can also check out our show notes at the website. Like I said, I'll have a lot of articles and information there. There's another website. It's great. It's called uxofchatbots.com. They just keep a running list of a lot of articles that are written on chatbots, both pro and con. So there's a fair balance in information there if you're trying to do some research on it. Um, all that will be at the website. Um, as always, I want to encourage you 
do your research, put your people first, and if there's one thing that's more important above all else when it comes to uh, user experience and chatbots and any kind of customer service aspect, it's to keep your personas close and your users closer. Bye-bye. Yeah.